Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. My two scholars and gentlemen with me this good Friday morning are... Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom, defending the God-given rights of the people to keep and bear arms. And by the way, Mike has a show just before ours, 7 o'clock Friday mornings, invites you to visit his excellent show at uh, Mike G in the Morning, The Law Matters. Well, we have begun last Friday a brand new series studying the Articles of Confederation, the first government that was at the federal level, that is the states, as soon as the uh, Declaration of Independence, as soon as the ink was dried, those states had to, re those delegates had to return to their states and craft a government for their state, and that was their state constitutions. But there wasn't a, an effective working uh, level at the federal level until, well, when it was finally ratified by all 13 states uh, in uh, 1781 before it was actually fully functioning. But the Articles of Confederation are important to understand because as the precursor to our United States Constitution, many of the concepts, many of the ideas, in fact, many of the actual wordings that we find in the text of our U.S. Constitution are directly taken from the Articles of Confederation. And we know from the Federalist Papers and other writings that our founders were believing that they were refining and perfecting what had been in the Articles of Confederation. To understand what they created in our U.S. Constitution, it's very important, vitally important to understand the document that preceded it that they were seeking to make uh, a better, perfect document. Of course, there's no such thing as a perfect human document, uh, but their attempt to improve it was what they were about. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your views as we look at Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation? Hey, uh, while there were some provisions in Article 4 of the Articles of Confederation that were used as a basis for the ideas that went into the Constitution of 1787, that relationship is more apparent in Article 5 and subsequent articles of the Articles of Confederation. However, there are also significant differences. Article 5 began, For the more convenient management of the general interests of the United States, delegates shall be annually appointed in such manner as the legislature of each state shall direct. We should note two distinct parts of this statement. One, annual versus biennial selection of delegates to the legislative branch. And two, the appointment of these delegates or representatives arbitrarily by the state legislatures versus the direct election by the people of the states. Of course, Congress under the Articles of Confederation was unicameral, having a single legislative house, whereas Congress under the Constitution was bicameral having a House of Representatives and a Senate. This is a major structural change, which should have triggered a reaction among the states. There was some resistance from the Anti-Federalists, but nowhere near what might have been expected given the implications of this change. No doubt the Connecticut Compromise was sold on the basis that states retained their powers as a result of the creation of the Senate. But that was not really true under that was not really true 
Under the articles, the states might pass or reject legislation alone. Under the Constitution, this power had to be shared with a popularly elected House of Representatives and with the president who could veto legislation subject to veto reversal by two-thirds majority in both houses of Congress. The U.S. History Scene website offers this explanation of the government under the article's uh, inability to raise funds consistent with other sources uh, on this subject. Only the states, not Congress, had the authority to impose taxes and raise revenue. Accordingly, Congress had to request for funds from the states. Per Article 8, these funds shall be supplied by the several states in proportion to the value of all land within each state. How that money was raised within each state was up to the state legislatures. Unfortunately, this money was oftentimes not raised by the states or given to the national government long after it was due. It's difficult to identify the culprit states, although we do know that an attempt was made to grant the federal government greater tax collecting power under the Articles, which some states resisted. Richard Brookheiser in Alexander Hamilton, American, describes an attempt in the Articles government to allow the government an opportunity to collect a 5% impost or tax on imports. Rhode Island held out against the required amendment, arguing that the power of the states to withhold taxes was the most precious jewel of sovereignty. While Congress in Rhode Island wrangled, Virginia withdrew its uh, consent to the impost. Rhode Island's opposition in 1781 to federal control was consistent through the period that included the ratification of the Constitution of 1787. But why the fear by Virginia? It seems to have little to do with the lost impost revenue potential since Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina had the major port cities with the greatest tax revenue to be lost. There was a second attempt in 1783, as reported by the Statute and Stories website. Despite New York's earlier support during the war, For the impost of 1781, New York became less willing to surrender its sovereignty to Congress after the war. It is also clear that New York was reluctant to forego its most important source of revenue, the lucrative tariffs, also known as imposts or duties, collected on goods imported through their growing port of New York. Perhaps part of this change of heart concerning a federal impost had to do with the status of the War of Independence. In 1781, New York City was territory strongly occupied by British forces. In 1783, it was clear the British would soon be leaving. The Statutes and Stories website has one of the most complete descriptions of the failure of the 1781 and 1783 imposts that includes these state, uh, these comments. During the New York ratification debates in 1788, Alexander Hamilton described the importance of the struggle over the failed federal impost. According to Hamilton, 
impost begat convention. In other words, the failure of the impost in 1781 and 1783 gave rise to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787. Professor Calvin Johnson argues that the first mission of the Constitution was to give Congress a tax of its own to help satisfy Revolutionary War debts. Indeed, some have speculated that if the imposed proposals had not been vetoed by Rhode Island and then New York, the Constitution as we know it today would never have been necessary. If true, Governor George Clinton of New York's short-sightedness in opposing the impost to 1783 has to go down as one of the greatest political blunders of all time. He then attempted to oppose the ratification of the Constitution of 1787. New Hampshire had ratified on June 21, 1788, bringing the Constitution into effect. Virginia had followed on June 25th, giving New York the choice of ratifying or remaining outside of the government to be formed along with North Carolina and Rhode Island. Clinton had been outmaneuvered by Hamilton. New York ratified on June 26. The impost of 1783 would have had a 25-year limit, and the states would have remained as sovereign under as under the Articles of Confederation. Instead, a much more centralized federal government was formed, in which few restrictions on taxation would remain, and a newly formed federal executive branch of government would have tax collection enforcement powers and many others the Clintonians regretted. Article 5 continued, to meet in Congress on the first Monday in November in every year with a power reserved to each state to recall its delegates or any of them at any time within the year and to send others in their stead for the remainder of the year. The power to recall its delegates and replace them with others made representatives servants of the state governments. By comparison, Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution, describing the Senate, is silent on the subject of states recalling senators. Article 5 continued, No state shall be represented in Congress by less than two, nor by more than seven members, and no person shall be capable of being delegate for more than three years in any term of six years, nor shall any person, being a delegate, be capable of holding any office under the United States, for which he or another, for his benefit, receives any salary, fees, or emolument of any kind. Within the range of two to seven delegates, the number of state representatives didn't matter because the state had only one vote. There was a a form of term limitation in that once three years had been served consecutively, the representative was required to vacate the office for another three years before again becoming eligible for the office. Clearly, the concept of returning office holders to ordinary citizens prevailed. The requirement in Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution that federal office holders not receive any other emolument was a part of the Articles of Confederation. 
Continuing into Article 5, we encounter this provision. Each state shall maintain its own delegates in meeting of the states, and while they act as members of the committee of the states. This is contrary to the treatment of public officials under the Constitution, which requires that their compensation come from the federal treasury. Article 5 concluded, Freedom of speech and debate in Congress shall not be impeached or questioned in any court or place out of Congress, and the members of Congress shall be protected in their persons from arrests and imprisonments during the time of their going to and from, and attendance on Congress except for treason, felony, or breach of the peace. This compares with the language in Article 1, Section 6 of the Constitution. The senators and representatives shall receive a compensation for their services to be ascertained by law and paid out of the Treasury of the United States. They shall, in all cases except treason, felony, and breach of peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses and in going to and returning from the same. And for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. It's interesting that freedom of speech was acknowledged in the Articles of Confederation, but not recognized for ordinary citizens. It is also curious that the Constitution states that for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. It is understandable that the debate in Congress shall not be impeached or questioned in any court, as stated in Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation, but the idea of congressional debate not being questioned at any place out of Congress seems to be an absolute contradiction to the principle of representative government. How are representatives of the people to be held accountable if their debates in Congress are not subject to debate? The drafters of the Constitution lost an opportunity to clean up this confusing language. Let me mention some general thoughts about um, the Articles of Confederation, which we can, we can reflect on in, in future sessions. As we explore the Articles of Confederation and their alleged inadequacies leading to the framing and ratification of the Constitution of 1787, we ought to be skeptical of the knowledge we have received about these documents and the governments associated with them. Too often we hear of the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation. Some of these must be acknowledged, but we need not assume that the supposed corrections in the Constitution were the only resolutions to these weaknesses. There was genuine fear of a strong national government being imposed on the people of the United States. Of the 13 former colonies, only New Hampshire escaped the movement of British forces across its boundaries. Even New Hampshire contributed regiments to the Battle of Bunker Hill and elsewhere. The people in these states did not wish to uh, substitute one strong central government for the one they had defeated at great cost. The former colonies had been at war from 1775 until the peace treaty of Paris 
1783, a period of eight years. Not every state was equally impacted. New England bore the early brunt of the war, followed by the Middle Atlantic states. In the final stage, southern states were most heavily exposed. All felt the effects of British sanctions which followed the war, and all states were faced with the cost of the conflict, which were significant. If we are to be objective about the alleged weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation government, we should take those factors into consideration. Also, to be objective, we should recognize the strengths of the government beyond the successful prosecution of the war. Representatives of the Articles of Confederation government negotiated one of the most successful peace treaties in history, significantly increasing the size of the new federation. The British attempted to use economic sanctions against the United States after failing to defeat it in the field of battle. The sanctions failed as successful loans from the Dutch temporarily replaced normal British investment. Seeing the futility of the sanctions, British investors then chose to compete with the Dutch, soon exceeding them. As a result of Maryland's holdout in forming the Articles of Confederation government, Virginia and other states had been pressured to give up their claims to lands beyond the Allegheny Mountains, north of the Ohio River. These lands were often were then controlled by the federal government and until they were adequately inhabited and could be admitted to statehood. This was the Northwest Territory that ultimately became the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and the northeast portion of Minnesota. The territory was organized under the Article, Articles of Confederation's Northwest Ordinance, which defined the bodies of government, established the legal basis of land ownership, provided for abolition and transfer of state territorial claims, made rules for admission of new states, established public education, recognized and codified natural rights, prohibited slavery, and defined the land rights and applicability of laws to the Native Americans. As a result of the Confederation's Land Ordinance of 1785, the sale of Western land became a source of revenue for the Articles of Confederation government. Shays' Rebellion is often cited as a weakness of the Articles of Confederation and a reason for their replacement with the Constitution of 1787. But a closer look at this event suggests that Shays' Rebellion may really have been a demonstration of the strength of the Articles gov government, which was based upon the principle of state sovereignty. Recollect that even the Constitution of 1787 did not allow the federal government to intervene in the internal affairs of the states, stating in Article 1, Section 8, to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. Shays' Rebellion was not an insurrection against the United States, but a rebellion by Western Massachusetts farmers who believed they were being unfairly taxed by the commercial interests in Eastern Massachusetts that controlled the legislature. Shays' Rebellion was ultimately resolved within the Commonwealth of Massachusetts 
as it should have been under both the Articles of Confederation and Constitution of 1787 law. Historians and school systems have promoted the idea that government under the Articles of Confederation was weak and needed to be replaced with a stronger central government to resolve these weaknesses. When the accomplishments of the government under the Articles are recognized, one comes to a different conclusion. Other factors should be considered, including the short-sightedness of Governor George Clinton in opposing the impost of 1783. If all parties had acted in the interest of the general welfare, the Articles of Confederation could have been appropriately amended. Oh, amen. Yes, Phil, I, I, I agree. And it's interesting you you point out some of the, uh, well, I guess you'd say it's propaganda. You know, the, the propagandists pro-Constitution are, of course, anti-Articles of Confederation, really unwilling to look honestly at the strengths of, of this document. And, and as you well point out, one of the great strengths of the Articles of Confederation is the protection it, it included of state sovereignty. Each state remained its own sovereign entity, and it was only only giving certain very, very limited powers to this confederation government that, uh, that the states would agree to go to war and, and uh, do some other, other things. But the very limited number of things contrast with what we have with the federal government under the U.S. Constitution. So uh, Article 5, as you rightly point out, talks about the, the delegates are annually appointed. And that's an interesting idea because we're used to, you know, every two years, all the House of Representatives stand for election. And most of our other elections, uh, both president and also at the state level, most of those are four-year terms. And every four years, then we have those folks standing for election. By the way, that's all happening this coming November, every a member of the House of Representatives up uh, for re-election. And so what's the advantage of two versus four? Well, I think one of the advantages of, uh, excuse me, two versus one, one of the advantages of one year is there's tighter accountability to the electors. You know, one of the things they talk about with many elections is that the tendency of the voters is to be forgetful. That is forgetful of events or forgetful of votes that uh, uh, their representatives in Congress took two years ago. So they could do all kinds of things unless they do them really close to the election. People aren't going to tend to remember it and they may not base their vote on some terrible thing they did. I know, Phil, you, you pointed that out there in Pennsylvania where your representatives in Congress completely voted for the bailout of the banks, you know, in 2008, that, that ridiculous thing where they bailed out these too big to fail banks. And then what, what happened in those too big to fail banks is all the CEOs got multi-million dollar bonuses. Wait a minute. We, the people are bailing these guys out and they're getting fat and rich off of us middle class. Yeah, that's the kind of ridiculous thing we see. But you point out that all those who uh, voted for that there got reelected in Pennsylvania. And how is that? Well, I think it's to the forgetfulness of the voter. So there's an advantage to a one-year uh, term where the you know the, the the representatives have to stand every uh, term every one year for uh, re-election. Greater accountability in that. Now, the other point you clearly make there in Article Five is that the legislature of each state gets to choose, gets to have complete control over the method of selecting those who are going to represent the state. That is. 
if they chose to, it means that state could simply – the legislature could simply appoint whoever they wanted. You know, at least they've got to appoint two or they could appoint up to seven. They get to choose or they could choose to have an election and have the citizens vote to choose the representatives. But it's wide open, therefore, for the states to uh, create any system they want in terms of uh, choosing those those who are going to represent the state. So there's a weakness there that obviously there's a degree of less accountability because if your state legislature chooses to simply appoint the representatives to Congress, then uh, you, the voter, really don't have any say other than you get to vote on the state legislature who goes in turn to appoint the uh, federal legislature. Now, the other element here is that it is very clear that the state, each state has the power of recall. Not only is there once a year election, but they can send, they can recall the existing congressman and choose another in their stead for the remainder of that one-year term. Wow, a powerful, powerful thing that a recall enabled the states to ensure that if their delegates were not accurately in Congress representing their state, in other words, the will of the state legislature most likely is what's going to be expressed here. But, you know, say a, a bill came up for consideration in Congress. Oh, let's just pick one like oh, Obamacare, for example, you know. And uh, it was clear that the state legislature did not want their delegate in Congress to vote in favor of Obamacare, but they went ahead and voted in favor of Obamacare. And well, the state legislature could immediately fire them, recall them and replace them with someone they uh, could choose who would do uh, their bidding uh, as a state legislature. So there's a very strong representation in Congress under the Articles of Confederation of the state legislature. And by the way, that design was preserved originally in our United States Constitution. It was preserved in the Senate because the Senate originally was appointed by the state legislature. So the exact same system we find here in the Articles of Confederation was preserved in the original design of the Senate. The state legislature would appoint whoever they chose to represent the state. And so the Senate uh, was the place where the state as a whole was represented. The uh, House of Representatives under our U.S. Constitution was the place where the people were directly represented and the people voted for and elected that. Now, that was destroyed by the 17th Amendment, one of the most tragic decisions in, in our country's history because it uh, tore away from the states the power that they had since the beginning of the country on the federal level, the power they had here under the Articles of Confederation, the power they had in the first uh, design of the United States Constitution before uh, the 17th Amendment. So uh, the other point that is made here is that uh, they can be represented in Congress by two, three, four, five, six, or seven. Every state could choose between two and seven representatives, but they only get one vote as a group. So if you have a, an even number, like the number four, you might wind up uh, having a problem with the uh, uh, a divided, equally divided group in terms of decisions and not be able to vote at all because you couldn't agree whether you're going to vote yay or nay as a group. But two to seven, they could choose each one. Uh, each one of the states only had one vote uh, in, in Congress. Now, uh, no person was capable of being a delegate for more than three years in any term of six years. A very important point. They had term limits, but term limits designed to allow uh, elected representatives to be returned to the people, returned to their 
regular status as a, as a citizen, rub shoulders with other people, have to live under the laws that they passed and created while they were in Congress, you know, have to go back to that level before they could be reconsidered and reelected uh, to Congress. So I think that that's a better plan. I know that there's some who are absolutely determined term limits. You know, we've got to give everybody two terms and then that's it. Or I guess in the case of uh, uh, those in the House of Representatives, give them four terms, so a total of eight years, and then they can never again run uh, for that office. Well, the design of the articles allowed people to run for office if they were well qualified, but it forced them after if they'd served for three years during the term of six, it forced them uh, to remain out of the running until the six years expired. Again, giving them some shoulder rubbing time with the citizens who they uh, were represented. Now, I, I appreciate you, Phil, pointing out that uh, they could not receive any fees emoluments of any kind while serving as a congressman. No double dipping allowed. And this is because there would be a clear conflict of in interest if you were allowed to have two jobs one of those jobs being a representative in, in, in Congress. And I, I like the illustration that we experienced here in Maryland in my own county. We had a man who uh, for, oh, I think it was 23 years, was in the House of Delegates, ultimately becoming the Speaker of the House of Delegates. And during his entire term as a member of the House of Delegates and as a Speaker of the House, during the entire term, he held another job in another branch of government. And that was at the county level, but it was in a branch of government. So he was receiving two paychecks, one from the county as well as one from the state government. Now, the when he died, and he's gone to his eternal reward, probably shoveling sulfur in my view. But anyway, God knows for sure. Uh, but in uh, in his death, there was all these kind of eulogies. What a wonderful – and it was fascinating to read some of those eulogies because some of the people admitted – the benefit to our county was that he got deals for Anne Arundel County that none of the other counties in the state got because, you see, he was Speaker of the House and he was also uh, in, in the Parks and Rec Department. And so the Parks and Rec Department of our county benefited enormously. They had these special turf fields that other counties did not have. They had all kinds of benefits because, you see, he had divided loyalties. He had this job in Parks and Recreation. He wanted to see that uh, that uh, county government prosper in our county, but he wasn't so much concerned about the other counties. And so our county actually benefited enormously. We got him bringing the bacon home to our district all the time, and the rest of Maryland had to pay for it. You see, that's the that's the evil of allowing people to have that conflict of interest by holding two jobs in the government, receiving two paychecks and doing uh, that double dipping. Now, again, that same idea is expressed in our U.S. Constitution. That idea uh, obviously is not often being followed because there's people who are serving in a corrupt way, not at the same time, but there, uh, there should be some prevention from them becoming K Street lobbyists once they've served in the government or going into some particular industry that they benefited, like Big Pharma or something of that sort, uh, while they were in Congress with their votes. But uh, then freedom of speech and debate, as you rightly pointed out, Phil, are, are preserved uh, they're not to be, uh, be being hauled in, arrested, hauled into court for things they said on the floor of Congress, unless, of course, they committed some form of 
treason, felony, or breach of the peace. And by the way, I think there's some folks – anyway, that's another story of folks <laughs> currently in office that, yes, are committing treason. But we, we can uh, talk about that later. Now, Article 5 gives very strong support to the sovereignty of the states. Uh, and so this is reflective in what the Articles of Confederation are all about. And John Dickinson, who was the original drafter of the Articles of Confederation, included ultimately equal representation in Congress, regardless of the size of the state. But others were saying, no, 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 we need to have a, a form of representation in which the population of the state is represented, not equal, not every state getting exactly the same. And Dickinson's argument ultimately won the day. Every state gets one vote and one vote alone. But we see that that led to the compromise, the Kentucky, uh, Connecticut uh, compromise that ultimately uh, produced a bicameral legislature in our U.S. Constitution, where in the House, yes, everyone's represented by the population, where in the Senate, every state is equally uh, represented, no matter its size in terms of population or its size in, in terms of geography. So the desire of those who crafted the Articles of Confederation is that they would have a system of national representation, effectively representing the people as a whole, that is, as a state and not by population. And uh, that, that was a protection for the sovereignty of each of those states. So a small state, small in population, small in geography, wouldn't be underrepresented uh, in the federal government, but have an equal representation in the decisions being made there uh, in the federal government. So their state sovereignty is, again, firmly established and held to uh, in the Articles of Confederation. Well, Mike, what uh, thoughts or research have you found on uh, Article 5 of our Articles of Confederation? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. Uh, I didn't go directly to Article 5 on this one. I just had something that I've been dealing with uh, it, through my law practice that seemed to be relevant in this vein, and I wanted to talk a little bit about it in general, if that's okay. Um, so when we're looking through uh, some of the different articles about the Articles of Confederation that you find through legal resources, uh, one of the, the, the brief pages that I was reading upon uh, talked a little bit about checks and balances, specifically um, their claim is, unlike the Constitution, the Articles of Confederation did not provide for three separate branches of government. And ultimately, uh, they cite to a, a bunch of different pieces of the Articles of Confederation in comparison with the, the Constitution to talk about the differences. And one of them that I found interesting, particularly dealing with the court system, uh, says that in Article 9, Congress shall be the last resort on appeal in all disputes and differences now subsisting or that hereafter may arise between two or more states concerning boundary jurisdiction or any other cause, whatever. And then they point to Article 3, Section 2, saying the judicial power shall extend to controversies between two or more states. So ultimately, um, we have these issues that are being resolved by uh, the, the judicial system rather than by Congress itself. And it led me to thinking of some of the things that I deal with practically and one of them has to do with some of the laws that are written by Congress. You know, recently we've had some federal gun laws come through. And just by reading these laws, you can see that they're going to be an absolute nightmare, an absolute mess. There's going to be all kinds of 
um, disagreements as to what certain terms mean. They don't define them clearly. And even in terms where they try to define them, they're not great definitions. The one that comes to mind and the, 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 the first and foremost is the law that expands the definition of misdemeanor of domestic violence. Now, contrary to what you'll hear on many mainstream media outlets, domestic abusers can't go and just get a gun. There's uh, already a federal gun law that applies to any misdemeanor of domestic violence, rendering the person prohibited from possessing firearms throughout the United States for life. And the two main things you've got to look at with the misdemeanor of domestic violence is one, is there an element in the offense that includes uh, the use of force or the threatened use of deadly force that would make it into the domestic violence category. But the other one is the relationship factor. Is the person, uh, the, the child or someone similarly situated to a child, or are they the spouse or someone similarly situated to a spouse? And there have been some interesting arguments over the years as to what constitutes similarly situated to a spouse, uh, certainly a live-in girlfriend, and much of the case law has been determined to be similarly situated to a spouse. Um, but beyond that, uh, we've had arguments with the agencies where they claim that someone who stays over for the night once in a while, that's similarly situated to a spouse. And of course, my argument and response was if I told my wife, hey, honey, we've got this new arrangement. I'm going to get my own place. I'm going to come home once in a while. I'll stay the night here and then I'll go back to my own place. I don't think that would last very long. So I don't think that that's similarly situated to a spouse. But this new law expands that quite a bit um, for a prohibition that would last five years. And they talk about someone who's in a serious, intimate or romantic relationship recently. And the the two main questions that are going to come up for sure are number one, what constitutes recently? You know, are we talking a year, two years, five years, 10 years? What is recently? And then what constitutes a serious, intimate or romantic relationship? Does it have to be Facebook official? Is that where we draw the line? Um, So there's not a whole lot of guidance on this. And when you look at the agencies who are tasked with interpreting these things and ultimately enforcing the law, uh, I have a feeling that they're going to be waiting on, on guidance from the DOJ as to how to interpret these things. So how is that fair? You've got a law that's written by Congress. It's a very sloppy law and they don't outline exactly what it does mean and who gets put in charge of deciding what it means, the DOJ. Are they not a little partial and biased in this system? Does does that not have to do with somebody who's going to be tasked with prosecuting these cases and ultimately they get to determine what this all means? Now, it's going to have to pass scrutiny in the court system, but is it really the court's job to do that? Why have we made it the court's job? So I was looking back on uh, this distinction that was put forth in this article, uh, making the distinctions between the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution, talking about how these disputes could ultimately be resolved by Congress if it has to do with some kind of legislation At first glance, it would appear, well, why wouldn't it make sense to bring it back to Congress? Congress wrote the law. Shouldn't they uh, be well-equipped at determining what that law means? And unfortunately, I think the answer is not necessarily, because you could have an instance where a Congress that's controlled by one party writes a law with a specific intention, and by the time the dispute gets back to Congress to make that determination, there's a different makeup. We see this happen all the time. 
and they determine that it means something completely different than what it was supposed to mean. So I don't think that uh, that system would necessarily work very well either. But I think what it comes down to is we've got to see a fundamental change in this country with the way laws are written. If you're not going to write it correctly, and if you, Congress is not going to agree upon language that makes things clear, don't write the law at all. How about that? Maybe we don't need nine trillion laws on the books. Maybe it's not that important of a law if we can't get the language hammered down so that it makes sense. Need some kind of filtering system to reject laws that are not written clearly, I guess, huh? Well, we were supposed to have the Constitution <laughs> dealing with vagueness, right? But yeah. that's, that's been so watered down that that doesn't even mean anything half the time. And, uh, the, uh, you know, so it's a, it's a double-edged sword if you don't have the Congress willing to actually write the law carefully so it could be easily interpreted. Then you've got the problem of, well, if you hand it back to Congress, they may not help at all. But if you hand it off to a judge, that judge may not, uh, you know, they may inject their own political view on on what they want, and they may wind up uh, legislating from the bench. And one of the things I think that's even worse than that is when these laws are written and the assumption is that, oh, yeah, the administrative department is really going to be the ones that define how this law works out. So the administrative uh, branch is going to wind up writing uh, the details about this so-called law. And so, in a sense, you've got completely unelected and completely unaccountable individuals making the standard for how this law is going to be applied to the citizen. And then we've got no recourse, right? And we don't see a problem with that. How does that not make everybody want to jump up and down and say, we've got to make a fundamental change in this country where we've got these unelected bureaucrats, as you said, and writing these laws, essentially, that is not their role. And frankly, we, we have concerns about judges making the wrong decisions. I think the bottom line is that it's not their job. They're not supposed to be having to essentially write these laws and making these determinations. So I think the blame really goes back to Congress. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pastor, go ahead, go. Bill. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Whitty, you made it, uh, an interesting comment, used an, an interesting term, I should say, a filtering system. And if you if you think in terms of a confederation or a federation, uh, what kind of a system was it designed to be? And the basic idea was it was a filtering system. In other words, uh, just about everything would be resolved at the state level where the people had direct vote, direct representation. But there was no attempt at the federation level to do that kind of thing because there were so few areas that came under the federation's jurisdiction. And these were specifically the kinds of issues like war and uh, relationships with other nations, that type of thing, and even interstate commerce. Uh, <clears throat> these things were designed to be left uh, to the representatives of the states. And so the idea of a House of Representatives, which is popularly elected, being involved in these things, um, you know, it was it was not uh, considered to be uh, consistent with that filtering system idea. And you, you also mentioned something interesting with Obamacare. I mean, why do we have direct representatives making uh, voting on something like Obamacare? It's unconstitutional. They have no jurisdiction whatsoever. Absolutely. This should, this should be resolved by the states. 
Absolutely. And, and in the case of Obamacare, I think the appropriate thing would have been the states to basically uh, uh, pipe up and say, wait a minute, this is not constitutional. Therefore, this does not apply within the boundaries of our state. Thank you very much. We're not interested. If anybody in our state wants Obamacare, there's the back door. Don't let it hit you where the you know, creator splits you on the way out. But you're <laughs> welcome to go somewhere else. <laughs> you're right. welcome to vote with your feet. Exactly. Checks and balances. And that's that, you know, as we're studying the Articles of Confederation, I think that's one of the beauties of the articles. Uh, there are things that would be improved on it. But one of the beauties was that it preserved that state's sovereignty, which it appears to me that uh, yeah, kind of the nose was uh, in the, the the door of the tent in terms of our U.S. Constitution, uh, because people like Hamilton and, and others would say there's implied powers that if you can read between the lines, you can see that we can do things that are not exactly stated in the Constitution, but are implied by the powers that we're granting and so forth and so on. And, and basically the explosion we have of gargantuan power grab on the part of Washington, D.C. today is due to that philosophy of Alexander Hamilton overtaking uh, you know, just about everybody down there in, in Washington, D.C. But um, there are no implied powers in either the Confederation government or the Constitution government, uh, there is specific language uh, that says that there are no implied powers, and yet we still insist on it. Mm -hmm. It's like Humpty Dumpty. You know, whenever I want to use a word, I use it. Well, what does it mean? It means exactly what I intended to mean and nothing more, <laughs> nothing less. <laughs> and Alice's response to her, uh, to Humpty was, well, wait a minute. You say that you can make words mean whatever you want them to mean? And Humpty's response was, exactly, uh, because it's all about power. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Humpty at this point. I think this may be before he fell off the wall and cracked up and you know <laughs> nobody could put him together again. But anyway, he, he was expressing this tyrannical view. Really, it's a tyrannical view of government that government is whatever we want it to be. And we can redefine words, which uh, famously the courts are <laughs> uh, doing all the time. Let's redefine the word marriage and, and so on. But if you grant that, if you allow them to have that power, then your liberty is essentially gone, you know, because they can rewrite it any way they want. And, and we see the kind of tyranny raising its ugly head today with 87,000, more than double the new IRS agents in an $80 billion budget in co contrast to what they had before this was just a $12 billion budget. So they're coming after all of us <laughs> and they've got their army and they're going to take, take, take. If they, you know, if, if we've been unhappy with how the IRS has been taken from us so far, look out. And it's not the rich they're after. I believe it's us, the middle class. They want to uh, go after because that's where they can see uh, they can get all kinds of tax revenue out of us. Yeah, the rich are not rich enough to satisfy the, the rulers, the ruling class. Uh, they've got to come after the middle class. Uh, that's the only way they could do it. And ultimately, they come out, come after the the uh, the lower class, but not directly. Uh, the the lower class, econ and I'm talking economically now. Um, the lower class can benefit by the tax system currently because they pay so little federal tax. Oh. That is a true statement. But who gets it in the neck through inflation? Mm, mm. It, it is the, the lower economic classes that feel the effects of inflation 
more than anybody else because they're they're living so close to the the uh, uh, the line. Yeah, and that as somebody has called inflation the hidden tax. It's a tax indeed, but not one that you could see and and talk to your representative about because they say, oh, we have no control over that. That's the Federal Reserve, and they're setting the interest rates, and we don't have anything to do with that. Oh, they have everything to do with it, but they're they're lying about that. But you're right. That hidden tax of inflation ultimately decimates the poorest in society that don't have the ability to increase their income. And we've, I mean, we're seeing that right now. You know, the increase in tax, gas, the increase in food prices, the increase in ultimately everything is going to go higher. And that's going to squeeze those who are on the margins financially and, and put them in a, in a bind that's very hard to get out of. Now, speaking of that, let me identify an a supposed exception to that. Um, I went by the, the gas station a couple hours ago and noticed that uh, regular gas is down in Pennsylvania to um, $3.98 a, uh, a gallon. And, you know, it was way up there. It was almost uh, $5 a gallon uh, not too long ago. Does this mean that the market is doing its thing? Well, not really. What's happening is that our strategic reserves are being politically tapped to release the the uh, petroleum um, so that uh, uh, people will vote more favorably for centralized government in 2022. And as soon as the election is over, watch out. The, uh, uh, the cost of gasoline will uh, start to, to head towards the ceiling again. Mm. Do we really want to live in that kind of a world, I don't think so. Yeah, buy, buying our votes with uh, with yeah. whatever manipulation they they can control. Yeah, so it's uh, the opposite of what the whole purpose of government was designed to be by our founders, and they clearly stated it in the Declaration of Independence that there is a Creator God. Our rights come from Him, from Him alone, and the only purpose of government is to protect our God-given rights and our. One of the essentials is life, obviously. The next is liberty, and the third is property. And indeed, this is where, where the rubber meets the road with these issues. They're attacking our right to property. They're trying to make it you know, impossible for someone to keep their savings. And that's one of the other disastrous, nasty things about inflation is the people who were wise and prudent and saved their money and were careful with their spending and didn't spend more money uh, than they earned and, and got out of debt as quickly as they could, those people are the ones that are hurt by inflation. Where the person who just spends profitably and they, they spend more than they take in and they're always in debt, they're the ones that actually benefit from inflation because the debt they have to repay, they're repaying with dollars that are worth less than they were when they borrowed them. So they're getting the advantage, the leveraged advantage of inflation by being spendthrifts, where the, the thrifty and the, those who are careful with their finances are the ones who are being hurt by inflation. So they're really the exact opposite of the message you want to send to your society about how to handle their finances. You'd rather have a, a people who are frugal and, and save and therefore have money to invest so that the industry and so forth can uh, be better in years ahead and the economy can grow rather than have people who are spending like a drunken sailor. Not only are they at, at zero, but they're continually in, in a state of bankruptcy, uh, having to try to repay the, the loans that they took out that they could not afford to pay. Now, speaking of loans and, and 
this is not a, an inflation issue. Well, yes, everything turns out to be an inflation issue, but but uh, the, the so-called student loans that uh, President Biden claims he's going to excuse. I don't know whether I doubt that he really has the power to do that. But you know, if if you were to excuse all student loans, who who gets hurt by that? I mean, if you're if you're uh, an ex-student, you've graduated. Let's say you've got a, a nice job and so forth. Um, you made a bet. You bet that the the education that that you were going to buy would be worth so much in the marketplace that you would be able to pay off the debt and get a good return on your investment. But you never, in that contract, indicated that uh, you expected that uh, you would be excused from the debt. You know, either completely yeah. or ten thousand dollars worth. Or twenty thousand dollars worth, or or what have you? Think about who has to pay this. Uh, you're you're somebody who, let us say, you've raised a a family of really good blue collar people who have never gone to college. Uh, you haven't gone to college yourself. Uh, <clears throat> you're being asked to pay off these loans for these other people. Well, what does this have? What does this do in the in the marketplace? Well, more funds are being poured into higher education. So what does higher education do? It increases its tuition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, already the tuition is not worth the education, so-called education, which is more propaganda in the, the liberal arts than anything else. It's not worth the money that's being put out. And now we're going to raise the cost of that? It seems absurd. Yeah, yeah. It's it, totally it, unjustified. It is. It's it's highway robbery, essentially. Again, the people who work hard are being robbed to pay for those who, you know, they go get a degree in gender studies or something ridiculous like that. And, and now they're going to have forcing other people to pay for their ridiculous degree. Now, now Mike, you, you know, you've got a, a, a degree, high, a college degree, high school, college, and then you went on to law school. That's rather an expensive proposition. Did that turn out to be a pretty good return on investment? Uh, for I, I can say that for some people, it does not turn out to be a good return on investment. Um, I do think that the costs of education are quite high, to be honest. With you. <laughs> but that's not really the government's problem. I, I don't think I'm not asking the government to step in and do something about that. Um, but for many of us who worked very hard with once we got our degree and hustled and did things like live on little to no money and drive a car that we bought for a thousand dollars out of a junkyard um, and struggle in order to get to that next level, it did turn out to be a, a good return on investment. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, it doesn't. And, uh, you know, I do wish that the education system were a little more affordable for, for many people. I was very fortunate in that at least after my first year and I was ranked near the top of my class, I was able to get a, a very, very, very significant scholarship for the remainder of my law school. Um, but definitely, definitely got the student loans there still. <laughs> not going to be shy about that. Yeah. Uh, but certainly not begging the government to step in and save us or anything like that. I did notice that um, from the little I have seen about this on the news, there's a cutoff as to how much you can earn and still receive the benefit that they're 
putting out there. So it seems that people who did too well are, are getting punished for that, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but let me make a point about that. Uh, the cutoff amount, I think, is $125,000. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people in this country um, who do not make $125,000 a year sure. who are being asked to pay off those loans. That, that's very true. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very true. And we know that whenever the government tries to create winners and losers in the marketplace, it always skews and distorts what otherwise the, the free market would, you know, there'd be ups and downs and so forth, but it would level things out because people would recognize, okay, this is the reality. You get a degree in gender studies, you're not going to make a whole lot of money. So how much is that degree worth? Is it is it worth $100,000 to get that degree in gender studies or is it worth $10,000? You know, the reality would set in. But w- when the government comes in with, with government loans and often the government loans don't you don't have to begin accruing any interest until you graduate. And now they're promising forgiveness <laughs> for some of those. The whole market becomes skewed. And you're right, Phil, the people that benefit the most are the academics because they can go in any direction they want and basically force the public to fund their industry. And that's uh, unlike most other industries where the people have a say with their dollars. Here the government has a say with our dollars propping up what would otherwise be a failing institution. And I think that there's many colleges that uh, I hope in the days ahead will face extreme difficulties because people will begin to recognize the return on investment for the degree that they're offering is not worth it. And many, as you rightly point out, Phil, many of the degrees they're offering are nothing but, you know, overwarmed propaganda. uh, And the students have to uh, apply with, uh, comply with the propaganda in order to graduate. You know, we used used to mock the the basket weaving uh, degrees. Um, But really, when you think of it, basket weaving was producing something of value for consumers. <laughs> That's right. And that especially when it was underwater basket weaving. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't I, have I, any basket weaving at my school, but I know a tremendous amount of baseball players would take racquetball as one of the courses. I do remember oh, that. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a racket. Yeah, a whole lot of those that uh, – yeah. So when when we compare our current education system with what was what was previous hundred years, most people that graduated from high school had a better education a hundred years ago than they do when they graduate from college today. And uh, that statistically can be shown in terms of their ability to read, ability to write, uh, and their ability to reason and, and think their way uh, through. And that's part of the problem in our country today. We have lost the independence of many uh, sectors of our society, and we've turned them over to the control of the federal government rather than, no, 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 the federal government has a very limited job defined by our Constitution, particularly Article 1, Section 8, with about 17 specific powers. We, the people, have granted to them this is all they should be doing, and anything outside that list should be prohibited from them ever beginning to do it. And we need to have a revolution in the minds of American people that they want to see their government limited and restricted to that list. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the Freedom Airways of WFYL, inviting you to check out our podcast on the website, 1180 WFYL. Join us again next Friday morning at 8 a.m.